Hi, I'm Mr. Wagner, and you're listening to the From R for Seed podcast, a short series about writing that ties in with From R for Seed 2019, an anthology of prose and poetry. In each episode, we talk with an author whose work is published in the anthology, and we'll listen to their story or poems. This episode features graphic designer and poet Elspeth Riley. I think you have to be um, extra empathetic in general to be a writer, but in particular I would say perhaps poetry as well, because largely it's just the condensing of an emotion. The episode is a bit behind the scenes like, since Elspeth has done the graphic design and typesetting for the From Arthur Seed anthology. She provides an insight into that process, talking about how both graphic design and typesetting for a book work. Of course, we also dip into her poetry and how to write poetry in general. If you consider doing graphic design for books, this is definitely an episode for you. Enjoy. Welcome, Elspeth. You have been doing so much for the From Arthur Seed project. You've done all the design, you've done all the typesetting, and uh, you've been a marvelous addition to the From Arthur Seed team. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you did exactly? Yes, so I was uh, lucky enough to be the art director for this year's From Arthur Seat. So that means I was in charge of designing the cover, so that's both uh, front, back, the spine included, as well as doing the entire typesetting for the um, manuscript as well, and creating the interior illustrations that are used to delineate the separate sections mm-hmm. of the book. And um, but you have been doing this before, right? This, this wasn't a totally new project you took on. No, it wasn't totally new. I um, majored in graphic design for my uh, undergraduate degree. And so I've done um, several typesetting projects in the past, nothing to this um, size or... Which is a great opportunity, of course. Was there something uh, that you really tried to put into your work here that you w- weren't able to do before? Yes. Yeah, so all my projects in the past have been uh, just student work, and so all of those weren't really um, limited by any particular uh, uh, design um, intentions. Mm. So I didn't go in knowing that a project had to be called a certain thing. I was right. just told to design a magazine. And just so a I random magazine. Random magazine. Maybe they'd give you like a, a slight idea to run with, like do a parody of an existing magazine, but it was free reign for the most part. So this was an interesting challenge because I had to uh, work within the framework of From Arthur's Seat and try to capture that, the idea of an already existing anthology. Mm-hmm. How was that? It was... Um, because there, there have been three editions before this one, right? Yes. Yeah, so I looked at the past covers and what I noticed in particular is that they all follow the same sort of a color scheme and just quite um, minimalist type on mm-hmm. the cover as well. And so I wanted to step away from that and really um, bring something that was eye-catching immediately. So instead of um, following the rules that the previous three anthologies have have followed, you just decided, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to do something completely new. No, because especially with Magalie's new, like, uh, choose-your-own-adventure approach that she took with this anthology, it's only fitting that the cover sort of stepped away from the past as well. And those designs in particular, uh, I'm not sure what their situation was, but it felt nice coming in as an actual graphic designer to be able to... Have the opportunity to work with this. No, project. exactly, exactly. Were there certain rules you were following? Maybe certain rules that the from Arthur C team or Magali um, asked you to follow, or that you imposed on yourself? Um, so I came um, to both uh, Magali and Merrill with um, five concept pitches. Okay. And so this was one of them, which was like the postcard idea, and there were uh, several others that had like more minimalist designs and um, 
I can't remember them all because they were quite uh, in depth. Mm-hmm. But this is the one that I ended up pushing for. It became my favorite during the uh, compilation process, and they agreed with it. So yeah, for those who haven't seen it, maybe you can describe the book cover a little oh, bit. Oh yes, so of course it's um, so because obviously this is a podcast. Yes. we were <laughs> now looking at the book physically, but uh. yes. So it's uh, Victoria Street, which is a very um, kind of like a bustling hub of Edinburgh, mm-hmm. and it's um, known for its quite colorful buildings. However, I put them all into a yellow um, color scheme. Yeah, they're very colorful, but we don't want their colors. We want our own colors. We want our own <laughs> colors, and that's just to keep it pared down a little bit, so okay. just to keep it sort of contained. Yeah. Um, the sky's been replaced with a pink background. Um, there is a halftone overlay over the entire thing, so that's just a bunch of little uh, polka dots Right. to kind of give that comic book effect if you mm-hmm. want to refer to it like that yeah, but yeah. also to kind of mirror um, old school postcards and perhaps the texture you might find on them the text itself is a um, a larger um, all caps font it's uh, blue but there's also a white um, kind of background to it as well and that's from from Arthur's seat the uh, main title and then there's a smaller um, a collection of short st- prose and poetry written in a, a cursive which is exactly what it is of course the front really looks like a postcard. Mm-hmm. You kind of try to do the same thing with the back, right? Yes. The whole idea is that it's sort of like a written postcard written by someone with, an, with your own stamp and stuff like that. Right. And of course it looks different from what we would uh, normally expect to see in a postcard, which is usually a horizontal landscape. Yeah. So I did look up um, examples of vertical postcards. I made the choice to not include the, um, the lines for the text itself because right. it was a little too busy and with the handwriting it got a little because we had Mero I think yes right to do the handwriting right so yes. the the back of the cover it includes an excerpt like a statement from Claire Askew writer in residence of Edinburgh University but we mm-hmm. also have uh, Mero's handwriting telling about the anthology yes we considered having Claire's uh, part also handwritten but we didn't think it'd be a right to have Meryl necessarily write Claire's words in her yes. handwriting. And, and of course, if you have Claire's handwriting and Meryl's handwriting, yes. that would be very confusing Absolutely. and kind of busy. And also just um, the scale of it all, I think it'd be too much. Hmm. Like a smaller version of someone's handwriting, it's going to get a little lost. I think this is about as small as you can go with Meryl's handwriting before it gets a little lost. Were there certain, like, certain ideas you really liked that you weren't able to put into this anthology? Yeah, I had the idea to create a sort of um, a thistle um, overlay to this postcard to kind of look like a, yeah, there's a thistle design imprinted on the postcard. Okay, so that's it, like the Scottish kind of Yes, the Scottish um, symbol. Yeah, the Scottish national flower. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it just, it looked too busy. I actually made the decision to kind of keep it out. I think Marilyn Magley liked it, but it, it was just too large scale. Yeah. Um, I also had wanted to put a thistle on the blank pages of the anthology, but we thought as well that that perhaps would be a bit too busy. And of course, had the illustrations inside been in color, I think I could have had a lot of fun with that. Right. That was a cost issue. You also designed um, markers that section off, for example, excerpts, mm-hmm. short stories and, and, yes. uh, and poetry. What did and you do with those? So we uh, looked around online for maps of Edinburgh and we just selected them. There was a an option for me to uh, hand illustrate things, but we thought it was best to kind of keep it rooted in like the physical, like the real. And so these are it's just a map of Edinburgh placed around um, different sections of it for the uh, 
to delineate the different um, sections of the book, like poetry has a different kind of mapping area. And so it's it's the same map for all of them. And that's because there's, it was quite hard actually to find like a good free for use map online. That wasn't blurry or, exactly. yeah. You have now done this project. If someone else would, like what, what would you say to someone who would have to design uh, a book cover or wants to get into designing book covers or wants to do typesetting, are there any tips you would want to give those people? Yeah, book, um, for book covers and just design in general, I think it's all about knowing the um, what the, the end product is. So for the anthology, it had to be something that was eye-catching because I know a lot of people don't necessarily reach for an anthology on mm-hmm. a shelf, yeah. especially not necessarily one created by students. And so it's got to be, um, it's got to be attention, attention grabbing. It's got to um, be inviting to the reader. Was, was that also the reason why a collection of short stories and short prose and poetry was written in such a tiny font? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't. <laughs> that wasn't necessarily my idea behind it. It was primarily that we wanted from Arthur's seat to be the focus of it. Yeah. And with the, um, the large scale um, Victoria streets being like the foremost thing on the cover, you know, it becomes a game of where to place the secondary like subtext. Mm-hmm. And so it was going to work on top of um, Arthur's, the uh, last three letters, but you can only go um, so big. So it's legible, and that's the main thing. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what you wanted to do. It's, that is not handwritten, right, that, that part? No, this is um, the same font as it's used for the titles of all the uh, works inside. I chose it because it's got a sort of like 70s vintage feel to it. Right, the same kind of yeah. feeling you were going for with the with the cover. Yeah, so it was right. uh, specifically chosen. We actually had to uh, pay for that font because uh, fonts cost money. <laughs> so <laughs> not everything is free. Not everything is free, and that font was just too good to pass up. So, what what happens when you buy a font? I okay, genuinely so don't know. Do you buy a font and then you can use it whenever you want, or do you buy it for a specific purpose for a specific project? Um, you can buy it and you use it for whatever you want, like if this is a commercial uh, license, because normally um, fonts are available all over the internet for free, but as long as it's like a personal project. And Not so, if you actually commercialize something. Right, so this is my first instance of actually needing to um, purchase a font. You know, I went into it kind of like not even realizing it. This is actually, it's a commercial project. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to have the proper licensing to do it. So you can just find them on any website and there's um, options for your, your needs. and. Yeah, it's just download to your computer and you've got free use once you have it. But then, like I said, uh, you could actually use it to, for other projects as well. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're a re- really big company, you can just buy loads of fonts and just use them whenever. Yeah. That's very weird. Yeah, there's some really nice fonts out there though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't want to design fonts either, so I'm, I'm happy someone does it for yeah, me. Yeah, no, I've had to design them in the past just for school projects, and it's it's quite tedious. And right, you have to design every letter and then every capital letter as well. And, and then how they're going to be spaced in between oh, each other. Oh, right, yeah. So it's quite difficult for um, cursive fonts to uh, get the lining up of where the little ends meets. And then it's worth buying one, right? It is worth you don't buying one, do that's it yourself. right. Because a lot yeah. of the cursive fonts available online are, I don't know, kind of half-assed, so. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> Now this was this is a really nice font. Is there is there something you wanna still do with uh, with design? I think I, I reckon. Well, you're you're both a poet and you're a designer. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which one of those paths would you prefer doing in the future, or maybe a little bit of both? 
I think definitely a bit of both. I mean, I think what I'm going for right now is uh, primarily graphic design jobs, but that's just so I can afford to continue writing on the side. I mean, my mm-hmm. end goal, as I think for all of us, has always been to be properly like published on my own, like a standalone mm-hmm. book in the future. I write both fiction and poetry, so ideally like a novel one day, then a collection of poetry as well. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I'm looking at design jobs primarily for uh, publishing companies. I mean, I feel like a lot of people from our program or from master's programs in creative writing in general, they obviously want to get published, like you said, mm-hmm, but then they would move into editing, for example, yes. because they would also help their, their work. But if you right. worked, do graphic design for books, you would already also be in this publishing industry. Yes. So that might open some doors for you. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And the idea that possibly one day I could design my own book cover is Quite that's exciting. pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty well, cool. you know your own baby best than anybody yeah. else, I suppose. So. Oh no, of course, and I, I like the idea as well of um, designing book covers for um, friends one day, just because I feel like it would put another writer's mind at ease to have a writer designing their cover. Right. Isn't it also stressful designing for someone else, though? It is certainly uh, stressful designing for someone else, um, but it just depends on what the project is and the client and the regulations that are in place for. So. I had a fine time designing this. I mean, yeah. You also did the typesetting for the book. Yes. How does that work? I have no clue how you would even begin to okay. work on that. Yeah, so it's quite the undertaking, which I um, I, I came to learn. Of course, I've typeset in the past, but just smaller scale projects, like eight-page books, things of that nature. So this is over 200 pages. What you do is you have your Word document with a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And then you have to place that into a separate program. So I used InDesign, like by Adobe. The first problem is, is that everyone's written on an 8.5 by 11 document for the most part in this Word document. And you've got to then place it into a book that's half the size of that. So the text gets all skewed. So I can place it in exactly like everyone is indented, but it automatically becomes altered because of the sizing difference, you know. But for for prose, that doesn't really matter for poetry that's that's an issue i suppose for poetry it's an issue in particular but some people uh, in this year's anthology did do um sort of interesting things with their stories and the spacing of things oh right for example angelo's story yes for example angelo's i think um one of amanda's stories as well had that um like timeline set up and so that was an interesting um an interesting one well then of course ning's poem was a visual poem that poem uh, posed a particular challenge, and it was because that it was written so it'd be um, formatted sort of like horizontally across the spread of two pages. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have the um, information necessarily necessary to keep um, the gutter into account, so there could have been a danger of um, the words actually slipping into the middle of the book. But the, the largest issue with um, that poem was unfortunately that just the length of it. It wasn't going to fit. I had to meet with uh, all the poets and... Um, and changes had to be made, just <clears throat> even um, slight ones. Like, um, for example, a lot of our poems were written, of course, to be like a single page if it's written on an 8.5 by 11. Mm. And so they then had to be broken up into two pages. And I just wanted to make sure that... They're okay with it, yeah. Yeah, and then what line it was ending on, like, was that an okay line to break? Oh, right, right, yeah. And um, one poem, Ellie's uh, Ellie Museum Jackson, of Childhood. Yeah. Ellie Jackson's Museum yeah. of Childhood is written in an interesting layout of these uh, these little boxes that right. are scattered around the page. And so those all had to be... Um, manually designed. Manually designed. And then uh, I had her actually come in and 
work with me to show me exactly where where each poem should go. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, it's cool, especially with um, working together with the author and seeing exactly what they want, want oh, you to do. I was very happy to be able to uh, to work with them and meet with them on like how best to present their poems. No, exactly. How would you start a project like this? How did you start the From Arthur's Seat anthology, working on the design and the typesetting? And the yes, so the first thing is designing the cover. And so that started with the concept pitch. Right, and I came in with the five designs. And so my first, um, the first thing I tackled, yeah, was the design of the cover. The men, uh, the typesetting had to be the absolute final thing I did because the manuscript was um, changes were being made, mm-hmm. just um, mistakes like being people, altered. Yeah, exactly. And people might want to tweak their stories a little bit still. Absolutely. And then the the prize winners as well that we have to include at the end of the anthology. Right. That came in um quite late, and so that was the last thing that was done. But it's arguably like the most. It's actually it's definitely the most intensive part of the project because mm. it's. It's just a very tedious process. It's uh, a lot of squinting at the screen. It's over 200 pages, and the program itself um, doesn't always want to cooperate. Right. Yeah, so it'll push things around just naturally. Like, it's actually quite interesting. So I placed in the entire manuscript via Word document, and so that kept all the, um, the indentations in place. Of course, it's been altered because of the size, so things are already screwed up Yeah. and have to be fixed manually. But it's essentially one giant text box so all 230 pages are on one text box oh yeah like you would have in photoshop for example yeah so what would happen is see if there was a spacing issue on one page i'd you know fix it and then something would happen on another page oh no so uh, page numbers in particular had to change a lot um the table of contents changed around a lot and then the uh (laughs) choose your own adventure the coordinates yeah those also were affected, so I had a. It was a lot of a revision for that sort of thing. This doesn't sound like a job I would want to do, and I also can't imagine you wanting to do it again. But because it just sounds super tedious. I mean, it's worthwhile now being able to hold the physical product, but the actual. Well, that's the cool thing, of course. Yeah. In it is, I've not had an experience like this before. Like actually, of course, I've, I don't know, printed off my own booklets, but that's just printer paper and. Mm-hmm. I don't know, hand binding. This is a whole different feel to it. I'm not sure exactly how many revisions we went through typesetting. It must have been four or five. And that's with Magley going through um, the, uh, yeah, my typeset manuscript, uh, catching little things that had been altered by the program and then me going in and fixing it. Yeah. So, yeah, when we had received the proof, uh, there were, of course, still little things that needed to be fixed. Um, lots had changed. Uh, post-proof so i know i was uh, telling everybody that things even like the barcode changed right i was really <laughs> uh picky about the barcode i actually um i made them even lower it a little further so the whole thing changes were being made i really like what happened to the barcode you made them i believe you made them a box like okay put the barcode oh, here yeah. and then they made the barcode fit that yeah, box yeah, so it was, it was totally <laughs> stretched out as well it was ridiculously yeah. hideous <laughs> So um, yeah, we fixed that up. I said, like, just please center it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I sent another email, like, lower it a little bit. <laughs> so they were very uh, very accommodating. It was um, lovely working with them. Do you have to be a certain kind of person to do typesetting? I don't, th- I don't think you have to be, but you definitely need to know the program. That's the main right. thing, is you have to have a good working knowledge of Adobe InDesign. And it can be quite finicky. And 
beyond that, I think you just have to have a, a drive to complete the project. Right. I mean, of course, I've got a large investment. You know, my own work's in there. All the work of my exactly. friends is in it. So You can't just walk away. You can't walk away. So once I started, I mean, I had to finish. And that's with five revisions and all. Right. Well, congratulations. Thank you. It was um, it's, congratulations it's, to you as well. Yay. <laughs> no, it's, it's especially great having a physical copy of something you worked on. Like yeah. just have, like you said, having something in your hand uh, that shows what you've been working on. It's, mm -hmm. it's, that really feels great as well. It feels really like you've accomplished something. Yeah, no, it was a... Uh, it felt uh, surreal to receive even the proof copy, hmm. just to be able to hold it in my hands. I was very excited. Okay, we're done now. We don't have to work on <laughs> it anymore. Proof that's is honestly that's that's almost how I felt. Like at least it was that initially it was like wow, like you know it's all been leading up to this, and of course we went out to, to get some cocktails, and right after that I'm like okay, here's a mistake there and there, oh, and this no. needs to be fixed. You were half drunk just looking at mistakes that. We're still there <laughs> not quite drunk but yeah no it became a uh i mean immediately post that it was like a, a brief celebration very brief and then i went yeah, back kind the of, briefest of celebrations it was the briefest of celebrations <laughs> and then i was up till i don't know god knows when just it's um i always go into a design project thinking it's not going to take me as long as it does because i always go in with um you know enthusiasm and I'm just and then really, that breaks down. Oh, it breaks down. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you carry on. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like the writing process. Yes, of course. <laughs> Talking about writing, though, uh, you are obviously a poet. Yes. And uh, a couple of your poems are also published in this anthology. Yes. With prose, it makes sense for someone like John to read the works. Uh, I think with poetry, it's probably a good idea for you to read the poems yourself. Would you like to read uh, some of them? Yes, of course. Or all of them? Should I read all of them? There's just, just three. Do, do all of them. Okay. Fledgling. This morning I nearly stepped on a bird that dazed and scared stood shaking, its tiny beak agape, pink sliver of a tongue, tasting the wind that slithers between the gaps in my fence. At this pub, everyone could be my grandparents, shivery hands, finicky orders, and winter coats still on though it's really quite warm in here. Warm like a soft bird body, scooped up and nestled in a plant pot to rest. I tuck myself into a corner after playing pick-a-pint roulette, and I lose, it stales in the mouth. In front of me, two ladies are swallowed by the fading upholstery of their booth. The loud one berates the other, who sits small, with her hat all askew on her head. Well, you should call her then, shouldn't you? Sneering through a mouth of burger, no bun, as the fork scrapes mustard off the plate, you're the one that gets lonely. Laughing and straightening her back, stiff like the stairwell railings that trail upstairs to her right. The small woman scrunches her soft bluish body and face. Oh yes, well, I do in the evening sometimes. And I quiver around the lip of the pint glass, swallow, pinching the bar napkin into a pile of wet red shreds. Plant pot is empty when I return home, and settled in trees, countless birds. I watch their polka dot bodies before it all blurs. Soap Lady, the Mooder Museum, Philadelphia. Bat-nosed and screaming, her lower teeth unhinged upon a missing tongue. Cream yellow specks on a blackened body, caked thick with grave wax. Exhumed from her coffin, once bedded in wormy soil, she stretches. In a finger-smudged, glassy casket, hollow-eyed, 
watches dead flies and fluorescent lights behind gawking faces. In flushed-faced youth, do the white linens still wet from the bucket, whip in the wind, and cling against the curves of her body, with the smell of lye lingering on the skin, her fingers red raw from the washboard. The Usual Red crackling of upholstered stools, tired from the wet weight of rainy men who mumbled to no one about the weather. Ordering drinks as stiff as the brim of their hats that sit drying beside muddy boots. Scattered along the rough grain of the bar, candles flicker and light filters through spotty tumblers held by shaking hands. A slow drip of wax hangs low in pools and idle fingers press and imprint those glossy white coins warm to the touch, like loose change stored in a front pocket close to the quickening beat of a heart slow soaked in slow gin and tonic. The sun wavers through warp glass, borrowed light catching and holding the dimly lit faces of daytime drunks. When ice clinks and empty drinks, they pay with fat hands of dimes that clatter and dance with hard taps leaving only when the waxy moon sits high in foggy sky and the rain-dappled roads have begun to dry. The chairs stand taller and the empty, the wax is scraped, the wicks are wetted, tumblers soaked, dried, and stacked. The shutters cover window panes, leaving only pinstripes of light and forgotten jackets. So we've just been listening to you reading three of your poems. Mm -hmm. How is it reading a poem compared to prose? So I think uh, largely the only difference is that there's a lot more uh, pauses to take in poetry, mm. and that's because the um, of importance of line breaks, and that poets um, are choosing exactly where each line should break off, like what word should be the final word, and what word then should carry back it, carry back off again, as well. So those uh, pauses need to be taken to consideration when reading things aloud. But mm -hmm. beyond that, it's largely similar. The reason why, of course, we wanted you to read your poems is because it's very nice and personal to hear poets read their own work, of course. Mm -hmm. What kind of personal things did you put into these poems? So I think of these three poems, uh, Fledgling and Soap Lady are the ones that have more of a uh, personal connection to me. Mm -hmm. The usual is just sort of a... Um, I don't know, a, uh, a look into my experiences at pubs. I've been to a lot of them. I like writing about them. <laughs> That's... I kind of like writing about um, just things I'm, I'm witnessing in general. But in particular, Fledgling is um, just a poem about a day I had in Edinburgh last semester. So it, uh, yeah, it started off exactly. It, just the entire poem is just sort of a play-by-play -play of that day. Nearly stepped on a bird. <laughs> didn't like that too much <laughs> it was just one of those things when you know you're walking and you're looking straight ahead but luckily I looked down in time and I assumed that the bird had just flown into glass and it was stunned momentarily but um, they do that sometimes of course so I just moved it out of the way and then carried on to a pub where I saw just these uh, well it was, a, it was a pub just full of uh, older people in general I was mm -hmm. the youngest in there by several decades and, uh, yeah, I just witnessed a conversation between two uh, older women, one who I'm assuming was a little, was older and perhaps not quite all there anymore. Perhaps, like, she had um, 
some form of like Alzheimer's or something oh, of that see, nature. Yes. Like her memory didn't seem to be uh, quite all there. It was just um, me witnessing this interaction between a woman who was kind of taking advantage of this uh, woman who they were around the same age, but uh, it was just a very kind of a cruel conversation that they were having. So I wrote about that and about how I, <laughs> I like cried witnessing this. I'm right. qu- like quite a uh, an empathetic person in that regard, and so it just really affected me that experience of. Do you think you have to be an empathetic? Well, I guess everybody has to be an empathetic person that would make the world a better place. But do you have to be an extra empathetic person to be a poet? I think you have to be um, extra empathetic in general to be the, a writer. But in particular, I would say perhaps poetry as well, because largely it's just the condensing of an emotion hmm. into a poem. I think fiction and poetry are quite similar. It's just poetry is more condensed usually. So it's about uh, writing from a particular place of mind or at trying to uh, elicit a feeling in the reader, but doing that with a, yeah, a shorter number of words than perhaps a, a fiction or prose writer. Well, yeah, I, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because I feel like one of the main differences between prose and poetry tends to be that poetry, it tends to be more about evoking a certain kind of emotion. And with prose, that's not the main goal. It tends to be, it tends to, be to explore certain concepts or... Mm-hmm these kind of things. Well, that's not as often the case maybe in poetry. Of course, there's also prose poetry that kind of blurs the line a little bit. but Right, of course. But I think, uh, I mean, poetry does a lot of things. It, it, it explores concepts, uh, surely. I mean, yeah, we were reading a lot of T.S. Eliot. He does a lot of work with the concept of time and the mm-hmm. passage of it. But um, I think myself in particular, and I know poets around me, are normally writing just to elicit an emotion. Mm-hmm. In the reader, but that can also be done through the exploration of a concept. I mean, right. my personal goal is to just make people feel something. And that's also just a great exercise to kind of um, write out things that you're experiencing on your own. Yeah, especially when you have a certain feeling that is so strong with you and you want to put that into words. That's, of course, mm-hmm. super tricky to do anyway. But if you manage to do that correctly, that's a very, very amazing achievement, of course. Mm-hmm. But that's something you would do normally, but you also dabble a little bit into prose poetry, maybe? or Prose poetry is normally that there aren't as many... When I think of prose poetry, I'm normally thinking of the structure of it. Okay. And so it's not as um, focused on line breaks. It's typically written out in like a paragraph style. Right. It'll still use the same poetic language, perhaps, but I don't necessarily see it as more of a, uh, more of a story or like mm. less like a traditional poem. Are there certain pet peeves you have? Um, yes. So I think my pet peeves are typically that I don't like the overuse of um, flowery language. So I think there's a good um, a median to hit. So when people kind of go all out with uh, just sort of long and beautiful words, when you can be using kind of like a sparser language to um, elicit the same feeling or create the same image... That's a pet peeve of mine also. It's kind of the fiction approach, in a way. Fiction approach? Well, just replacing super flowery language with, okay, but what do you really want to say? Yeah, of course. I think there's a misconception that poetry is supposed to be this kind of flowery and grand thing. When, um, you know, it doesn't have to be by any means. Um, Another pet peeve of mine is that, and this this goes for both fiction and poetry, Mm -hmm. but um, it's just cliche. I think... uh, it's easy to kind of go into cliche sometimes with poetry, especially with people that are starting out. Mm-hmm. 
just kind of like, you know. Well, this sounds poetic, but then a million people have thought that as well. A million people yeah. have thought this as well, yeah. or, you know, things like, even simple things like, oh, my love for you is like a rose, or you know, oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. raining inside my soul, and all that kind of <laughs> stuff is... The stuff that that is okay in crappy pop songs, but you can't get away you with can't it. Get, you can't get away with that in writing. You can't get away with that in poetry. No. So that's it's my. It's raining in my soul. <laughs> that's my largest pet peeve, I think, as um, people You're, getting a little too flowery and. Uh, do you sometimes catch yourself writing crappy metaphors as well? Um, I mean, definitely when I was uh, starting out, because I've been writing uh, poems on and off since elementary school right. when I first like picked up a rhyming dictionary and I was oh, like nice. well this is incredible like wow <laughs> these words rhyme I was like these words rhyme and so a lot of my first poems starting out were just rhyme heavy which is actually another pet peeve of mine poetry doesn't need to rhyme I right. think a few rhymes here and there lend themselves very well mm-hmm. or if you're writing yeah with the I don't know the intention like maybe you're writing a sonnet or something mm-hmm. and you're doing it in a new and inventive way you can incorporate large-scale rhymes but um yeah poetry doesn't need to rhyme that's a that's a pet peeve <laughs> but yeah <laughs> starting out i'm sure i was definitely um melodramatic in my first couple of like poems but how, how old were you when you started out let me think i was in so i was in the fourth grade, which I know doesn't mean much to a lot of people. So that's, I think I was around 10 or 11. But it makes sense for you to start out being a little bit melodramatic when you're about 10 or 11, right? Oh, no, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I mean just, of course. Exactly. Just sort of pubescent kind of way of writing poetry. That's that's about um, the, the, the rain in my soul and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no, of course. And nowadays, I mean, I'm taking a lot longer to kind of work through my poetry, so I don't mm. find myself slipping into metaphors that I personally find silly right because I'm well I'm spending quite a lot of time with them to make sure I don't right write something that's like overtly been done before or is just too far-fetched because that's another thing as well people write really far-fetched metaphors that I read they're, like they're hit or miss <laughs> yeah. they're hit or miss I think uh, sometimes they can be really incredible um and other times it's like that's that's a bit much <laughs> <laughs> but I sometimes I've well, if if the writer, I suppose, isn't conscious of the fact that it's a very far-fetched metaphor and it makes total sense for the writer, mm-hmm. okay, well, then it's de- probably going to be a miss. But if it's a conscious decision to just, for example, have a character in a, in a story, mm-hmm. think of these really far-fetched metaphors because it fits with the oh, then, kind no, of abso- weird... Oh, absolutely, it, it's just, yeah. Just a great way of uh, of writing, I suppose. Yeah, there's always a, a time and place for Exactly, like exactly. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the style of writing poetry, um, are you very conscious of, of considering what style you write in? Right. So I think my style is largely, um, well, it's it changes ever so slightly, but it's largely the same. I just think it's because it's myself writing the poems. I don't go right. in like thinking, oh, well, I have to um, kind of mirror what I've written in the past. Or, I mean, I've experimented with more um, form poetry. Mm. So like I've, I've done a sonnets and um, sestinas and things of that nature but largely I write free verse um, so usually it's going to be a free verse poem that's just kind of what I naturally slip into unless I'm making the conscious decision like I'm going to write a sonnet um, you kind of have to have be conscious of the fact that you're writing a sonnet of course yeah going to so write I've got or sometimes you do slip into like if you're noticing that I'm writing a lot of um, three line stanzas 
like if my first two stanzas are three lines, I might make the effort to uh, make the rest of the stanzas all three lines as well to kind of fit that pattern that's naturally yeah. occurring. Maybe I didn't set out to do that, but I'm noticing it appear in the poem, so I'll work towards that. But do you generally slip into a, a certain kind of poem, or do you generally plan it out a little bit? Um, what I tend to do is I either have a line of poetry that's kind of been stuck in my head, mm-hmm. or a a word I want to use in a poem, or sometimes it's just a, a particular situation arises and I feel like I should write a poem about it, like the fledgling story as well as the soap lady uh, poem. Mm-hmm. Both were just situations where I was like, well, I should probably write a poem about these. Yeah. Okay, well then you have a certain moment that you're like, okay, I'm going to put that into a poem, but when you start writing the poem, mm-hmm. would that be like, okay, uh, now just type away? So it's usually a lot more um, kind of free-flowing. My poems are largely um, imagery-based, so they're just quite like visceral imagery, mm-hmm. and then the feeling arises from that. I don't typically, I, I don't really go into my poems thinking, well, this poem should make my reader feel sad. But that is just tends to be what occurs. I mean, I sometimes go to my poems and I'm like, well, this line sounds really gross. And I hope when my reader reads it, uh, yeah, I hope it grosses them out a little bit. Like that's something sometimes I go into uh, wishing. And of course I want some. Please be grossed out by my poems. Please be grossed out. Or, (laughs) I mean, of course when it's finished, I do see like, oh, well, this is quite like a, a somber poem. I do, of course, hope that it's apparent to the readers as well that right. the tone of it all and that they leave feeling Yeah, but you don't want to put a subtitle of your poem like, okay, please be sad because oh, this no, is Oh, no, of course. Yeah, so I don't... Um, <laughs> I usually just write it out. And, of course, the nature of those um, experiences like fledgling and soap later are quite, like, somber. And so um, it's naturally going to come into the poem, yeah. even if it's just imagery-based. Because I don't think there are any lines in there that... I, I know there aren't that say, like, use emotion words. Right. Like, I'm not using the word sad ever or somber or things like that. Yeah, you don't want to force these kind of emotions on, on people, maybe. No. With these three poems that you have got, gotten published in from Arthur Seed, you also mentioned that, for example, sometimes you have this line stuck in your head. Did any of these three poems stem from that kind um, of... Let me just look back the, for a yeah. moment to see... Uh, just to remind myself... Oh, yes, actually, um, the usual did. I had the line, um, borrowed light, catching, like catching and holding the dimly lit faces of daytime drunks. Because unless I'm terribly mistaken, that's um, iambic pentameter. Like, I, I wouldn't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so it means like um, like stressed, unstressed, stressed, oh, unstressed. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. So I think, yeah, catching and holding the dimly lit faces of daytime drunks is iambic pentameter. So I had that line in my head. And I kind of branched out from there. Of course, I never write with iambic pentameter in mind because I find it quite tricky. But right. people tend to kind of fall into it sometimes naturally when speaking. Do you realize that as well when you hear someone speak and be like, whoa, you just did <laughs> You did it. I, <laughs> I have once or twice in the past, but it's, I'm never listening for it. Or I feel like it's never overtly obvious with that line in particular. I was yeah. kind of saying it in my head a bunch and that's when I kind of picked up that it was quite it was musical in the way that I knew it um it was iambic pentameter right when you workshop other people's poems Mm -hmm. what do you look for what makes a good poem 
So I think it, I mean, in my personal opinion, what makes a good poem is it if it's something that I would want to read aloud. Okay. If the language, um, you know, is, is mu- musical, it's making me feel something, like I leave it, I leave the experience, like, thinking about it further, mm-hmm. that's a successful poem, in my opinion. Or if there's even a line that um, kind of sticks with you, I think we're told that that's, that's also, that's a success. Mm-hmm. If you have your readers leaving and they're just... That, that line just keeps yeah, stuck in Even if head. there's one thing or if there's like an image that's sticking with mm-hmm. people. Like I remember um, images that people have written in, our, uh, in my poetry at cohorts that still stick with me, mm-hmm. just like one-off images or lines. So that's all successful. I'm looking for um, I'm looking for lyrical language. Again, not necessarily a rhyme scheme or things like that. Just something that makes me want to read it aloud, hear it again. Yeah, things that are working towards like a uh, just kind of an honest interpretation of uh, the human experience and all or, that yeah, jazz. Reality. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's great hearing about about poetry, especially since. I'm not that familiar with um, with with poetry anyway, so it's uh, it's very great hearing from from you about about poetry mm-hmm. and obviously also about uh, about designing, which I also know absolutely nothing about. So thanks so much for dropping by. Okay, thank you for having me. And uh, we'll definitely hear from you again. The From Arthur Seat podcast was produced by me, Wester Wagener, with the help of Megali Roman and Miro de Beer for 2019's From Arthur Seat anthology. Story excerpts were read by John Reed. Special thanks to Jack Taylor. From Arthur Seat 2019 is launching on the 8th of May. You can visit us at fromarthurseat.com. Thank you for listening.